Welcome to Peripheral Thinking, the series of conversations with academics, advisors, entrepreneurs and activists, people all championing those ideas on the margins, the periphery. Why is this important? Well, as the systems on which we've depended for the last 50, 60 stroke thousand years crumble and creak, people increasingly looking for new stories, new ideas, new myths, if you like, that might guide and inform how they live and work. So in these conversations, we take time to speak to those people who are championing the ideas on the margins, championing the ideas on the periphery, those ideas which are going to shape the mainstream tomorrow. Uh, And our hope is that you're a little bit inspired, a little bit curious enough to take some of these ideas and bring them back to the day-to-day of your work and your life. Uh, Hyman, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's an absolute pleasure. So I've been familiar with your writing essentially for quite a few years now. So really excited to to be able to talk to you. And so just a little bit of context. I'm actually wearing two hats, although as Hyman can see on the video, and if you're watching anything of this, you will know too, I'm actually just wearing one hat. But the two hats that I'm wearing, are this conversation will go out to the two communities of which I'm very active and part of. One is the peripheral thinking community, which is where this podcast exists and of course the other community is is Sangha Live our online community uh, which provides meditation and all sorts of various kind of teachings and practices so really excited to be able to share this conversation with both of those communities so I guess for people who don't know you like I said I've been familiar with your writing now for a few years through two of the brilliant books that you've written and we'll get to today talking about your the third book which is out now and uh there was someone, I think, I don't know if I read it as a quote or if I imagined it, but I don't know if somebody described your writing as something like the feel of a, of a warm hug, or in my mind, it was the kind of feeling of being in a warm bath, that there was something very nourishing, very kind of, very warming about your writing. So um, while we're kind of running the bath of that, and we'll come to your, your third book in a little while, for the people who don't know, how did you come to be writing? And what is, some of, what is your work, essentially? Oh, so as some people know, I am a Buddhist monastic from South Korea. But I went to school in the U.S. for my education's undergraduate and also graduate school here. When I was young, I was very much interested in ultimate questions who am I and what will happen when we die and what's the purpose of our living here. So I decided to become a monk because I was, I really wanted to experience quote-unquote enlightenment, awakening experience like the way the Buddha did. So I went through the training and then I um, followed many different teachers and had my own sets of unique spiritual experience. And then I had to uh, work for my own teacher. In uh, there is a you know small um, Buddhist temple in New York, which is about one hour north of Manhattan, and that's where I served. And but interestingly, when I first became a monk, I thought that all I had to do is just meditate and then become awakened, and that's all there is to it. But then I realized that you know a lot of work involves care for parishioners, our members. Though our members are usually um, Korean-American or Korean immigrants to the United States. So they had a lots of personal sufferings and many different kinds of uh, problems, cultural and linguistic challenges, generational you know, problems. And so I have to like listen to them and try to help them. 
and which in, deepen my practice of compassions. The, the kind of practice of, of writing, has that always been a, a key part of what you do? But how did, you, how did that come to be a key sort of tool, if you like, in your own teaching? I think writing has been a time for me to reflect and pause. And whenever I become mindful of some of the silly aspects or petty aspects, some of the negative, quote-unquote negative aspect of myself, I pause and try to be mindful of the very content that I am observing. And as I am doing that, uh, I'm writing that out. And usually I write it for a small newspaper, a Buddhist newspaper in Korea. And that helps me to really look into it in a much deeper way. And then also I start posting some of my thoughts online through social media. And then I was able to interact with other people. And then, you know, eventually I started School for Broken Hearts immediately after the success of my books. And so in Korea, uh, where there aren't a whole lot of group therapies, <laughs> so I invite people who are going through um, you know, difficulty in their lives, whether it is um, you know, cancer diagnosis, like recent cancer diagnosis, or whether it's illness or divorce or some kind of failure in their life, when you simply have a very low self-esteem, you know, I invited them and we got together and have an open heart conversations. And I guess in a way, the kind of popularity of the writing and the school for broken hearts that brought your teaching to a sort of real wide number of people, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think I cannot just talk about high Buddhist philosophy to average people who are suffering. I have to meet them and really listen to what, what is happening. So it's not enough to say that everything is mind projective. <laughs> you know, there is no such a thing as an objective world out there. Like you cannot just expound this kind of high non-dual philosophy. You do have to listen to them. You know, their problem is very concrete. My, you know, my wife is just diagnosed with breast cancer. What can I do? I just got fired. I don't have a job. I feel very insecure. What can I do? So I have to do both while addressing their um, unique needs and try to give them some practical advice. But at the same time, I have to introduce mindfulness, how this Buddhist practice can help them. So this, the, your third book, the book that we're, we're talking about today, one thing I would say, your writing has such a sort of a beautiful simplicity to it. And uh, it really is very, very evocative. And it's kind of just it really so simple in its, in its form. It really gets to the heart of things. And like I said, very evocative. And the titles are brilliant for all of them. For the people who don't know, the first two books, I think in the right sequence. So the first one was The Things You Can See Only When You Slow Down. The second is A Love for Imperfect Things. And this third book is titled When Things Don't Go Your Way. And in a sense, the telling of this story from the writing of the book seems to have its kind of origin sometime around 2020. Is that right? Yes. I had some difficulty in my life because I appear on Korean televisions and then people start... Um, Mis misunderstood me basically and there were lots of um, online you know, attack on me just they, there's a lot of misunderstanding they imagine that I live very opulent life <laughs> and have a Ferrari and all that stuff which is ridiculous because I don't even have a Korean driver's license and <laughs> 
But uh, my also my teacher told me to just go back to your original mind, the first mind, and then beginner's mind, and then just go into temple and just pray and practice. So that's what I did. But in the meanwhile, it was very interesting for me because it was a journey of healing from that difficult experience. I confront my own fear and right behind the fear, there was a lot of undiscovered aspect of myself waiting to be unlocked. So I face my own fear, especially uh, fear of abandonment. I, ever since I was very young, I don't know why, I was so afraid to be abandoned. It was strange to me because my parents were really loving and kind and supportive. And so I just could not understand why this fear, where it is coming from. And then as I was doing the healing work, it came up uh, some kind of fresh, like a like memory that had been repressed when I was like four, maybe four or five. And uh, I lost my mother in the big open market and I was um, looking for my mom and I couldn't find her. And then there was a strange lady came and took me uh, her place. And I thought something was really strange. So I basically rushed out and then ran as fast as I could and back to the open market and continued to look for my mom. And I was able to finally found her. And this whole experience was really traumatic for me and so painful that I repressed it. So I was able to unlock that trauma and give a loving, healing message to my inner child that is, I'm here for you. I will never abandon you. I see you and I love you no matter what. So I continue to do that. It's, if you have that kind of experience, you know, I recommend that you use your uh, child photo, your own child photo. So I have a photo of me when I was like four or five, and I put that onto my cell phone, mobile phone background. You know, whenever I turn it on, that's the first image that I'm gonna see. And then I look at that innocent looking child and try to give that message that is, I love you. I am here for you. I, I will not abandon you. Well, that is, is a kind of a beautiful story. Thank you for sharing. I guess the thing that kind of reminds me or comes to mind as you're sharing that is how underneath, as almost like a sort of silent hand, which is shaping what we're doing, how we're reacting things, how we respond to things, what triggers us, what worries us, are these sort of underlying stories you spoke about there, a fear, a fear which is a fear of abandonment. If I think about my, my own stumbling through life, I've kind of really reactive to feelings of loss or feelings of rejection. And so I, I, it's almost as though I kind of look for these triggers in my day-to-day -day interactions, in my day-to-day -day conversations, my day-to-day -day relationships. And so the thing that kind of come into mind as you were sharing that story there is just how pervasive these sort of silent hands of the kind of emotions, the worries, the fears that sit underneath, how sort of strong they are in shaping how we, how we, how we travel through our lives. Right, right. Like, you know, right underneath our subconsciousness, there is an ocean of, you know, me <laughs> that is waiting to be discovered. And only when we embrace them and allow them to be there and recognize their presence, that we can make peace with them. And when we make peace with them, then we can finally coexist. <laughs> the, some of the problems that I see is that we 
pick and choose some aspect of myself. I love it, and therefore I, I like that, and I want them to stay. And some aspect of myself, I feel very shameful, and I don't like it. I think it's very embarrassing, or I cannot believe that it is there, you know, <laughs> my pettiness, my jealousy, you know, my anger. But if you can just widen your space of your mind and just allow them to be there, then, you know, you can cohabit it. You don't have to be a saint. You can be the whole person, good and bad. And that's not bad either. I'm thinking that, that the kind of practice of of not being the saint or of, of cohabiting, of allowing all of these things to exist at the same time. I guess the, the key word in there, it's a practice, isn't it? And to do this uh, with kindness, to do this with compassion. If I think about, again, my own experience of this, you know, in reality, whilst I know I may react negatively to, like I said, kind of feelings of loss or feelings of rejection, I may know that. But the kind of the frequency with which I can get caught by it, of course, important to come with kindness to it because easy to trip up over and over again. Yeah, it, it's a practice. Yeah, like you said, we often just do it again and again until we learn our lessons. The same pattern will just appear again and again. I was talking to my friend and she was telling me that she cannot believe how her new boyfriend resemble her ex. <laughs> and I think it's interesting how go through the same experience. If we do not learn our lessons, there is a good chance that we will repeat the same pattern again and again. And the, but one of the important thing is, whether it's good or bad, realize that it is our own judgment. It is what it is. It is neither good nor bad. Only when we start judging it, it becomes bad. And at the same time, you are witnessing all of this. You are observer. You are not that which you are observing. So, you know, when there is a jealousy, you know, let the cloud of jealousy come in and then it will go away naturally. So you don't have to identify yourself with jealousy. You don't have to identify or with your anger. You are this calm observer. All those clouds come in and out, but you don't have to hold on to any of them. Um, your book poses some really lovely but simple and important questions. Like One of the ones which uh, you, you kind of asked earlier is, why are we unhappy? Yeah, it, it's simple, you know. <laughs> we are unhappy because we cannot be peaceful with what is. You know, we want something else, basically, you know. We want other than what is. We want other than what is given. So what happens is we either resist what you already have or you try to grasp something that you don't have. So these two activities of our mind that is resistance and grasping. As long as you go back and forth, you feel unhappy. That is, you know, when you, whenever you are, you want to grasp something that you want, and yet you don't have it yet, and or you know, it's coming on your way, and yet you don't like it. Therefore, you are resisting. So, I introduce this practice of gratitude, as you a lot of listeners know. If when we feel grateful. We do not resist. We feel grateful that it has happened. And then when we feel grateful, we don't look for something better. We are content with what is. So 
I say you can text yourself whenever you feel grateful, or you find somebody like your gratitude buddy, and you can, or you can text each other. You know, whenever you feel very grateful, so you can encourage each other. You know, we can encourage each other to send more messages about gratitude. If you want to pick a small pebble, just put it nice little pebble. A stone in your living room. So when you, whenever you pass by, you know you see the stone, the pebble, and then think of something that you feel very grateful. And you can also say thank you wholeheartedly to people who are helping you, whether you are in gas stations or coffee shops or supermarket. You can say thank you genuinely, deeply. So. This practice of gratitude can actually alleviate our two tendencies to making ourselves unhappy, <laughs> unfulfilled. Thank you for that. I kind of, I, I really enjoyed the what you're sharing there about that. The reminder, whether whether it's the pebble, because one of the things that I find is so I try and just remind my or, or reflect on things that I'm grateful for, whether in, in the morning or or in the in the evening, and I'm sort of conscious that there are so many times where I think, you know, I'm not actually. I don't feel grateful. <laughs> I don't feel grateful right now, and I can't like can't get my mind to a place. You know, I feel like I'm scrabbling around trying to find something that I'm grateful for, and the more I'm scrabbling around trying to find something that I'm grateful for, the less I feel grateful, and then I get stuck in it, stuck in a loop. And I guess the helpful reminder in what you're saying is actually just to to bring it closer, to focus. On the simple things, to focus on the things which are kind of much more immediately available, rather than needing to be a big thing that I'm grateful for out there. Absolutely, you know, you know, like whenever I, like when I was young, you know, I had to go to a public bath with my father, and then he woke us up at me and my younger brother at five in the morning on Saturday because that's the time when the water is the cleanest, you know, according to my father. So you know, waking up at five in the morning was so hard as a like nine years old or seven years old, you know, kid, little kid. But after having you know bath, taking a shower, I feel so much better. So whenever we don't feel like grateful, just like you know, taking a shower, and after taking a shower, you feel you know happier. So that、uh, just the, by the act of saying thank you, thank you, you know, I don't feel like it, but thank you for this warm weather. Thank you that it's not cold and snowy. Thank you that I am still alive. Thank you for this you know deep breath and my. Body feels relaxed. This, you know, will to this attitude that I just change just slightly. That can actually shift our mind greatly. But if you don't feel like grateful at all, then just practice mindfulness. That is, oh, I don't feel like grateful, and <laughs> that's okay. Just be mindful of that. You know, I, I don't feel like it. You know, that's fine.、Um, so, just make. Your body, your mind, so wide and so huge. You just embrace everything. It's okay. Just you become mindful of you know what's happening. And what I then find when I do that is actually not dissimilar to what you were talking about before. Actually, being mindful, making space for the sort of the kind of agitated, often smaller version of me, which is sort of in a way jumping up and down and kind of upset about something. And the the kind of mindfulness creates the space. 
for that version of me also to to just to relax a little bit, I guess, is what comes with lending it some space, with seeing it and holding it within that kind of mindful, bigger picture. Absolutely. Yeah, you are, you are correct. It's our <laughs> willingness and making space, uh, whether it's a good or bad. And as soon as we you know, have that space, then we can relax a little bit. Beautiful. You ask another really good question, sort of, which I reflected on quite a bit. It's you, you kind of framed it as how do we feel about the universe? And it was a, it was a question that I've sort of read, uh, not so, I guess is often the way. Often I think where there are, are great quotes that people have said, certainly in kind of my experience, they normally get attributed to one of a few number of people. And I, I've often heard this kind of referenced via Einstein, that somehow Einstein asked the question about how you feel about the universe. But you write about it very uh, kind of beautifully in the book about the extent to which we see the universe as a benevolent or, or we see the universe as some sort of uh, some, as something to fear. And the importance of this, in, not in a very similar way to what we're talking about, I guess, with gratitude, the importance of this in terms of understanding that this is then the lens through which we travel through the world. So yeah, I was, I was very curious that you framed the question in that way, this idea, how do we feel about the universe? Right, yeah. It's not, there is objective world outside that we can have access to it. Instead, it is the world that we perceive is very much subjective. So if you feel that the world is unreliable, and untrustworthy and it is source of fear and then you will experience that universe and conversely if you actually believe that universe is benevolent it is there to help you guide you to the right destinations it's going to give you the job that you need or your friends or your lovers whatever that you you your heart desires then you will see that is what's going to happen to your life. So there is no objective universe out there. Instead, it is how you perceive. Sometimes we feel like a victim. You know, we just go to this victim mindset where I don't have any power and I feel like everything, everyone is just giving me hard time. There's nothing I can do. This kind of victim mindsets. But you can actually change it by saying that I'm going to be the creator of my own destiny. <laughs> I'm not just going to be there and just live my life passively. Instead, I made my decision to be happier. I made my decision to engage in a meaningful world meaningful work you know so you have a lot more power than you th think our mind has a lot more power whichever area we pay our attention to that area becomes bigger and more important and it becomes more apparent <laughs> whereas in other words if you just zero in on the world that with a lot of neg negative news then you'll see more and more negative news negativity around you but if you see a lot of positive things then you will also experience a lot of positive things because we cannot access to objective world we only live in subjective world and i guess what we're talking about there a little bit is the idea that psychologists call confirmation bias don't they that we tend to see the thing that we are looking for in a sense absolutely yes yes that is so true um so I, I wanted to ask people, because my, for my case, 
That particular, how I view the universe, it came from my own father. So it's usually generational. Um, it passed down from your one generation to another. And so if your grandparents will, had some kind of trauma, then that trauma quite easily <laughs> passed down to your father and it's also passing down to you. Uh, that was exactly what was happening to me during the Korean War. My grandparents and my father didn't have a whole lot of food to eat. There's no shoes, nothing. And therefore, the life was very difficult and everything in order to survive, you have to compete. You cannot rely on other people help. So um, the world, my parents, especially my father's he lived, was very much uncaring and you have to work very hard to, just to survive. Subconsciously, I inherited that worldview. So it was harder in the beginning when I was 20 years old to trust the universe, to see the universe as benevolent. And so, however, as I became a Buddhist monk, and I have another you know, father figure, my teacher, who's the, exactly the opposite. He believes that there, there are plenty pies to go around for everyone. <laughs> Whenever he prays to the Buddha, you know, good things happen to him all the time. So he is an incredible optimist, and he has a lot of faith in the Buddha and faith in the universe. So I learn you know, a lot from him. For somebody who hasn't then had the kind of opportunity and practice, say, even obviously of a monastic training, or how can somebody start to explore and experiment and better understand what stories, what ideas they may have inherited, which is kind of uh, causing them to see the universe this way or that way? I mean, what's your, your kind of feeling or your insight about how somebody might start to explore or experiment with that themselves? I think you can listen to what people say about you. <laughs> you don't have to believe everything what other people are saying. But, you know, somebody who's very close to you and very, you know, loving to you, and they say something about uh, some patterns, you know, in your behavior or in your mental thinking, then you can ask, why do I have that pattern? Why do I keep coming back to the same mistake or same way of behaving? Because it, it can cause a lot of suffering to other people too, you know. As my father was very much trying to hold on to what he has and not very uh, giving to other people besides his own immediate family. When I saw that, I really did not like it. Like, especially when I was a teenager. And his friends, and so he doesn't have a whole lot of friends, for example. I find it very sad. And I talked about this with my father, you know. Um, and he's not, um, he's like slowly, you know, being aware of what's, what happened in his life. So this level of self-awareness, you know, we develop as we confront our own suffering. If there is a repeated suffering again and again, and then we come, we realize, oh, maybe it's not others, you know, <laughs> maybe it's me, <laughs> you know, like I, in the beginning, I blame other people. It's my ex's fault. It's not my fault. It's the way my ex behave. And then uh, you have a second, you know, <laughs> relationship failure. And then you, you realize, oh, what's happening? Uh, maybe there's some part of me that I have contributed to this. What is that? You know, what's the pattern? You know, where did I get that from? Yeah, that's a, it's a very helpful uh, pointer. Because I, I certainly think about lots of 
people I know or even reflecting on myself where I will, may often see those patterns as in my work and the idea that the same kind of problems are following me around or the same kind of interactions with people are following me around. And it's a, a great kind of opportunity to, like you say, reflect and ask the question, who, maybe it's me that is bringing these, uh, these problems to the party. And so, yeah, so kind of using our, our own behaviour as, as a prompt is a very helpful one. Yeah, because we are suffering because of those patterns. You know, we are constantly repeating the same experience. So we need to be wiser and say, stop, you know, what's happening? I'm really, really sort of struck by how kind of long established a lot of these triggers, these suffering prompts are. There's a, a story you, you talk about in the book which is there's a lot to do with the relationship that you had with your cousins and your uncle when you were growing up. Yeah, I have to say that, you know, I you know, had a lot of jealousy you know, when I was growing up. It's a little um, embarrassing to accept it, but especially when there was a huge uh, disparity. My uncles had so much. Uh, he had a very nice, you know, apartments, um, and very lived in a very nice neighborhood and then my parents we lived in a very small tiny studio and that didn't even get any sunlight you know, during the daytime so i felt whenever i go to see my grandparents uh in in my uncle's house i felt so angry you know and then didn't feel good about myself or my parents so that experience, I'm sure anybody can relate to, you know, whenever you have jealousy towards your cousins or your siblings or your friends. And I talk about in my book how to overcome it. How can we use that for the better, you know? Yeah, because again, I'm just sort of I'm really struck by how these sort of events or layers upon layers of uh, experiences that we've had, interactions that we've had, how these these come to shape so much about how we travel through the world, you know, how we come to relate to other people, how we choose the work that we do. And for many of us, to varying degrees, these impacts remain pretty blind to us actually you know we don't we don't take time to surface them we don't take time to to understand them and then I guess the consequence of that a lot is for large parts of the time we, we're sort of operating a little bit on on a kind of blind autopilot right right even the you know wonderful psychotherapists they have their own blind spots and I see even the great you know spiritual master they have their own blind spots and so it's important to go deep into your you know, subconsciousness and you know, allow all those emotions and try to understand them and also you know, honor their existence rather than repressing them and pretending that you don't have any such issues. So if somebody says, like especially you know, people close to you are saying something about you and at first you don't agree, you, say you don't have it, and then another person very close and there's no uh, intention of hurting you but they are just saying something so your very close friend or your family or somebody is saying it to you and then same things they are talking about again and again then at first you might be in denial but after hearing a second and third and fourth time then you might be saying oh maybe that's my blind spot something that I have not actually fully explore. I'm just curious, actually, as you're talking, was there a sort of specific prompt for 
writing this book now? I just wanted to show people, you know, how I was able to heal myself, you know, uh, when you have a traumatic experience in your life. Even the, the Buddhist monk or the founder of Broken Hearts, School for Broken Hearts, <laughs> we have to go through uh, the, the journey of healing. It starts with our own body. That is, when there is some trauma, it, the trauma resides in our own body. You, know, you cannot just snap out of it by having a positive thought. You have to release all those trapped energy within your body. So I dance a lot. <laughs> I, you know, I the mountain quite a bit i do yoga you know uh, i do a lot of activities in you know, a walk every day you know two three hours and then talk to trusted friends you know honestly and so i get to fully have the reflection i do journaling you know write down and ask questions to my deeper self future self if you will and to me the question was what are you really afraid of because only when we can face our own inner fear and walk through it and you realize that, oh, this wasn't so bad. I don't know why I was so afraid of. Uh, usually right behind the fear, that's where your uh, potential, your great greatest, some of the greatest potential, it is there you know, to be unlocked. One of the um, things that you write about in the book is, 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 is loneliness, which obviously is increasing. I guess people are increasingly aware of it, aren't they? Politicians talk about it a lot. It seems to be something which uh, more and more of us are aware of or more and more of us are experiencing. And so I guess part of what you talk to in the book is talking to this idea, this, this pandemic of loneliness. Yes, with the um, development of our technology, uh, we are so easily, we can connect to other people very, very easily. In the past, you know, whenever you want to call, make an international phone call, it costs a lot of money. <laughs> but nowadays, you can just text message or you can call anyone basically, right? For free. <laughs> and yet, a lot of people feel isolated and unhappy, especially when they are scrolling through social media. It seems everyone is doing a lot better than you. And why am I feeling so not good? Why am not that beautiful or not so successful like them? But the thing is, we have to commit to meet your close friends face to face uh, on a regular basis. Especially if you can uh, do things, engage in activity together, uh, whether it's hiking or whether it's playing tennis. <laughs> Uh, or exercising together, or re you know, going to library together. You know, uh, if you do things together with your friends, and then while having lunch or coffee together, you can have a, you know a good conversations. That can definitely alleviate your suffering. And one of the reasons why we feel lonely is because we cannot let ourselves to be seen. We are so afraid that once. Once we talk about our innermost desire, innermost, you know, what's really happening in our lives, we are afraid to be judged. What if my friends, after listening to my story, spread rumor about me? All the secrets that I told him, what if he spill it to, to you know, other friends? Therefore, we feel we have to just play the role. You, we are just wearing masks. 
and just do the role and without taking the mask down and showing our real feelings. So it is important to have a friend with whom you can be real. <laughs> you don't have to pretend. Uh, you don't have to be judged. And for that, you have to be the person who can be reliable, who's receptive and kind and supportive, and also keep their secrets. And then uh, your friends will do the same. It's interesting. So hearing that, because obviously then this idea of kind of loneliness, so that, that makes a lot of sense that in a way we're sort of hiding. We are keeping some of ourselves hidden. So we are disconnected from ourselves which then by extension makes us feel disconnected and and kind of uh, disconnected from others and so with that lonely but I guess in a sense that is probably been true for the human condition for many many thousands of years in some respects and so whether the kind of current sort of pandemic of lo of loneliness just is a sort of slightly more about the comparison aspect of technology and what that's done because I, I guess yeah I'm just kind of curious for your your view on that you know in a sense that kind of keeping some of ourselves hidden do you think do you not think that's kind of been true for a long time given it's part of the human condition oh yes absolutely it is part of our human nature we don't want to reveal something about ourselves to a person we cannot trust <laughs> right so however this technology heightens this feeling of i'm not good enough especially social media if you look at them it everything is just so beautiful and so nice and so wonderful or so funny <laughs> whereas my life is monotonous you know it's not as exciting or successful or beautiful therefore we tend to compare them, ourselves to them and we feel lonely you know if we feel like if we do not have that level of success or that level of beauty then maybe you know i'm not worthy to talk about myself to you know my friends maybe i'm not good enough that kind of feeling however i think it's critical that we at least have a one or two friends with whom we can show our true self we don't have to be so polite we can just talk about what's really happening in our lives and some of the disappointment if you feel if you can just share it with others interestingly that feeling of heartache it lessens significantly <laughs> um, because we are suffering alone that level of suffering deepens and it's interesting i know when i was reading your book you make the connection also between the impact on parenting here and because this is a, a kind of a very sort of alive topic for me. I've got two boys who are 13 and, and nine. So I'm often thinking about the impact of my own actions on them. And of course, you know, and all parents to varying degrees come with the best intent, however that may kind of manifest. But I was kind of was really intrigued by something you were talking about in the book, how given sort of lots of people, lots of us going to grow up, never really feeling like we're able to be ourselves because some behavior is encouraged whether explicitly or implicitly some behavior is encouraged some behavior is shunned uh, and of course we learn from that uh, or the assumption the assumed learning from that is i need to do more of this to to remain in the, in the good books and so we become estranged both from ourselves but then also from 
from our, our parents a little bit. And so I was really struck by that, actually, about the need to kind of uncover or the, the opportunity to, to uncover some of these layers a little bit to kind of remove, remove, limit the kind of barriers between myself and my children. I thought it was interesting you talking a little bit about parenting in the context of loneliness, too. Yes, uh, um, you know, sometimes as a parents, they want to use their children. Like sometimes they want their children to be their best friends. But I don't think, you know, children's obligations to make your parents feel better. So you need to have your own set of best friends, not your children. Uh, children should have their own best friends. Right? It's good to have a close relationship between parents and children, but it's completely another thing if you are emotionally relying on uh, your child for your psychological well-being. <laughs> or like what especially Asian parenting, like what they call a helicopter in a mother, try to control everything or type a mother, <laughs> like try to make your children get straight A, and if you're not getting straight A, you're not good enough. That kind of heavy, like a huge expectation on your child, that is also very much unhealthy because you are living your life through children's achievements. You should have your own achievements and, and then let children have their own life. And you should definitely encourage them to do well at school, definitely, but you cannot force them. You cannot blackmail them <laughs> if you don't get straight away then you know you know i'm not gonna do x y and z for you that's blackmail and the thing which then comes to mind as you're talking there obviously kind of buddhist teachings thousands of years in the in in the telling in the living in, in the doing and of course we're living in a time which i don't know feels like a time of profound change but i'm not sure if everybody says that at their time of change, but you know, with with so much happening technologically, socially, economically, environmentally, ecologically, so much feels that it feels to be in a sort of time of flux. I'm curious. Given we were talking there a little bit about children and about about parenting, and I know this was a question which comes up, which has come up for people in my community, and will be true for people too in in on the the sang as part of the Sangha Live community. You know, what 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 do we think is most important for for parenting well in a time like this which seems to be a time of such profound change i think it's important to share this fundamental buddhist teachings of how everything is impermanent and change is inevitable and if you children accept the change as opposed to resisting it and seeing that as something negative because it is neither negative nor positive. It is what it is. Changing is inevitable and it has always has changed. It's been always changing and it will continue to be. So rather than labeling it as something bad or good, see for what it is. And then another important maybe thing to talk about is having good intentions. It is our intention that creates the universe. What kind of intention do you have? Are you having an intention to create something for the better? And are you are learning about your own world with that intention? <laughs> so, so that you don't do it in a blinded way. Um, so check 
with your own intentions, whether you are doing it just so that you can actually benefit, not just for yourself, for people around you as well. Beautiful. Thank you. And so I guess that's a final question, because picking up on that idea of intention a little bit, what's your, what's your intention, your hope, your intention? I guess if they can be conflated together, a hope and intention. But what's your intention for people reading the book? I hope they read all the way to the end because the last chapter is the most beautiful chapter in my mind. And uh, in all three of my books, uh, the last chapter, that's where I really wanted to share the things that I really wanted to share. I talked about it. That is our own true nature. Our true nature is our awareness. It is not necessarily our emotion and thoughts, which are constantly changing, but you can anchor yourself in your own awareness as an observer. Everything you know, comes and goes. Like if you are into mindful, mindfulness in you know, meditations, what happens to the mind when there is no object to be mindful of? We are mindful, usually mindful of our thoughts or emotions, feelings, bodily sensations. But there is also a period when you sit and meditate, there is nothing to be mindful of. And the mind is quiet. Then what happened? What happened is you become mindful of your own mind. You're mindful of your own awareness. So for the first time, you are looking at that which is looking at you. And that is awareness. You know, when you can do that, you come to realize who you truly are. You are not the body, you are not the emotion, you are not the feeling. It's all come and go, but the ground, the background, when all those things is happening, this empty, transparent awareness, it never gave any birth to any kind of form, and therefore it will not die. And so if you can actually awaken to your own true nature, that's where you find a peace and true relaxation <laughs> and liberation. Thank you very much, Hyman. Yeah, and I should say for people who are not familiar with your books, they're a, a sort of a beautiful combination of sort of short story or essay, I think that they're described as, which is, is often you recounting a story of your own. And then lots and lots of really, really kind of beautiful um, short little insights or reflections or, or stanzas. I think they've also been been referred to. And certainly the way I have read the other two books is they're great accompaniments. And I think we were talking at the beginning about the idea of the kind of feeling of a, of a warm bath. And so this idea of a kind of carry the books around and they're great to dip into and dip out of because lots and lots of really useful, provocative, insightful little inv invitations, reflections, which are offered throughout the book and a great way of kind of playing with and reflecting on and going deeper into a lot of the ideas that you've shared. So I just wanted to point people to that because it is the books, are, the books feel like a, a little artwork to me. Thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, you, you, talk, you talk about your intention of wanting people to get to the, the final chapter. I, I know when, when I was reading, I got, there's not only the kind of final chapter, but there's just a kind of beautiful little reflection right at the end. And so I really do encourage people to, to read the book. So I know it's, it's out in the US now. We're recording this very early February 2024. And so it's out in the US now, that's right. And the title, When Things Don't Go Your Way, Zen Wisdom for Difficult Times. And I know it's, so it's due out in 
the UK and other countries in the coming weeks and months. Is that right? Right. In the UK, March like 23rd or something like that. Yeah. So toward the last week of March, the UK edition will be even better. You will have a lots of beautiful illustration inside. So please, um, you know, pick it up if you can <laughs> and connect with me on Instagram if you have one. And I would love to hear what you, you know, thought about my book after reading it. And that would be uh, really, really nice for me. Brilliant, Hamid. Yeah, I will include the links to um, your Instagram and point people to, uh, to the book in the accompanying show notes. And yeah, I equally really do invite people to, to buy the book and dive into the reading and to really enjoy it as much as I have. So Hamid, thank you so much for taking the time to come to talk to us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. Thank you again for listening. We really hope you enjoyed that conversation. As ever, if you like what we're doing, uh, if you think anyone, if you, anyone you know would benefit from listening to this conversation, enjoy it or dislike it even as much as you have, please feel free to share it. Uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to do that. The sharing is the lifeblood of this. Sharing and liking, I think, are the, the currency of our modern time. So if you take a moment to, you know, share it with somebody who you think would benefit, we hugely appreciate that. Or even take some time to write a review. Uh, irrespective, if you like what we're doing, you can find out more. If you search up peripheral hyphen thinking Dot com. You'll find your way to the podcast website. You can sign up there. You can register there. You can keep abreast of everything that we're doing. We'd be sure to keep you notified as soon as the next conversations go live. Meantime, thanks again for your time. Thanks again for your ears. Uh, and we look forward to you joining us next time.